Happy holidays, everyone. Look who's back home. The main man himself, Mikey D, Mikey Diamond, the dose of diamond. That's a dose of happiness for everyone. Uh, happy holidays, my friend. How are you? Good, man. Nice to be back in LA after being in DC so long. Yeah, I was suffering. I think I look back on mine. I got Portugal, Pueblo Allende, New York, Vegas, British. I got Meltzer Island and the British Virgin Islands and then Bora Bora. So that's where I was while you were in DC. Sorry. It's all right. You, you suck. I, I, got I do. I'm glad we got that straight. Well, our guest does not suck. And not at all. Uh, he'll, eleva he'll, he'll elevate us. And in fact, I'm super excited uh, to learn about uh, some of the things that I need to learn about and how to survive the fast changing times that we have. We have the founder and CEO of We First. And uh, everybody knows Simon Mainwaring. He has written a new book in November last month that came out called Lead With Me. And it's the business. Actually, lead, lead with we. I want to call out oh, that lead. distinction. I got bad eyes. Lead with we. With we. So, same with me. My eyes are getting terrible. So totally get yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh! I got to quit using uh, drugs. Yeah. Mike, I need some help. Give me a recovery program. <laughs> All right, lead with we. Sorry, the business revolution that will save our future, um, and it really is needed because you know the people talk about uncertainty. There's always uncertainty. It's the speed in which change is happening. Uh, that makes it nearly impossible to, you know, create a business plan or to have a proper uh, structure or scaling of a business. And so, you know, with lead with we, there seems to be a shift in a paradigm uh, in how to lead today. And I was hoping we'd start with that. Why the title lead with we? Yeah, thanks, Dave, for having me on. And, and I got to say that the question that's kept me up at night for the last three or four years is business is front and center in terms of solving for all these issues we face, whether it's a climate emergency, all the things we hear about in the press every day. Yet I don't think we're moving far enough, fast enough. You know, we're not going to get there in time. These timelines are contracting towards us. So I asked myself the question, what's wrong with this picture? And years ago, I'd written a book called We First, which was about moving from the me first mentality to a we first mentality. But what's missing is that we're not leading together to accelerate and scale our response to these crises. And, and let me tell you why it's so important. How you show up now as a business, as a CEO, as an employee, will really determine the reputation of the company. It'll determine whether people want to work for you. It'll determine whether your customer wants to buy your product. It'll determine whether you're relevant in a world that's increasingly being defined by these challenges we face. COVID, climate, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, all of these challenges are throwing an expectation on business that we've got to rise to if we want to grow, if we want to be relevant. And so lead with we is really about saying to us, instead of the we being an afterthought, let's put that front and center. Let's serve the collective. And when you do that, it changes everything in terms of your role as a CEO, as an entrepreneur, as an employee, you know, how you compete in the marketplace. So it's, it's really exciting, but it's, it's urgent. It's very, very necessary. Did you start off with this mentality? What made you shift into the we and not me? What happened? You know, it's a great question. I was an ad guy for 20 years in Australia, London, and then all over the US. And you sold lots of things. You know, I worked on Nike for five years at their ad agency, Wyden and Kennedy. And I came away from all of that going, wow, through the power of storytelling, we can shape culture. I mean, you know, we did projects like the Olympics and the World Cup and the ads would go out and everyone would go crazy. And it was great. But then the global economic meltdown happened in 2008. And I just sat there like anyone going, what's wrong with this picture? You know, people are losing their homes, their health care, their hopes, all of that. And 
yet we have the ability to change behavior and to have positive impact through storytelling. Why aren't we doing that? And so I left my you know, corporate career and, and started my company, We First, to help businesses use that storytelling to do more good at scale. In that, in turn, builds their reputation, helps them attract employees, helps them sell more products. And then as we've seen with COVID over the last, what, 18 months, the expectation on business has gone through the roof because we can see what business can do. We take care of the mental health of our employees. We send people home. We show up and provide emergency relief and support. People can't unsee that. So if I was to say one thing to your, to your listeners, COVID is not a one-off and we're going to get back to normal. COVID is a pilot program for the way that business needs to operate on an ongoing basis moving forward because increasingly our future is going to be defined by one crisis after another. So you've got to be ready to ramp up, respond, protect yourself, help others, and make sure you keep your business going. You know, yeah. it's so important uh, to understand the distinguishment between, for example, conservation or, you know, what I call kind of Band-Aid approach. Mm -hmm. uh, so people are, you know, very excited about conservation and sustainable practices. But the truth is that, just like technology hits a chasm and has exponential growth, so does consumption. Mm -hmm. And what you were talking about that's so essential is timing, because I believe that all sustainable practices, all conservation that we do, all type of compassionate capitalistic attitudes are really one purpose. And that's to give the entrepreneurs, give the businesses the time, as they always have, to save the world. To give a business, you know, the ability to, for example, convert the plastics in the ocean to energy, to unfill our landfills into energy, to fill up the hole in the in the atmosphere with some sort of gaseous solution. These are all going to happen, but yep. we just have to make sure that we utilize this we first attitude, the lead with me, in order to facilitate giving these innovators and businesses enough time. And what I hear you saying, if I'm incorrect, if I'm not correct is that you're working from both sides. Not only, hey, let's do all these great things to give us time, but hey, if we work together, we can do this faster and we won't need as much time. You're absolutely right. It's about prioritizing the we over the me, and now it's doing it together so we get there faster. And you know, the reality is this, every one of these challenges in the marketplace, David, that freak us out, we look at the headlines every day, every one of those challenges is a marketplace opportunity in disguise. And you're absolutely right. We are, you know, we are going to have 10 Teslas and Googles and Microsofts born just through climate tech alone. This is an incredible opportunity for entrepreneurs that just have that clarity of vision to say, yes, it's challenging, but challenging just means that there's a pent-up demand for a solution in the marketplace. And people are going to be rewarded for doing so. And if you want to do that most effectively, kind of drop the blinkers that you put on yourself and say, how can I work with a wider range of partners and how can we accelerate and scale our response so we get more credit? Because then everyone who's involved builds your business with you. So it's not just the responsibility of working together and leading with we, it's the benefits that come from leading with we because everyone will drive your growth. And you're seeing this, just one example. I mean, you see clean beauty, you see clean food, you clean sustainable, you see sustainable apparel. But just look at Elon Musk. When I wrote my first book 10 years ago, the, the, the traditional auto industry tried to shut him down. Who's this guy with battery technology and charging stations? Never going to happen. 
10 years later, every major auto, major auto manufacturer in the US has made a commitment to phasing out combustion engine, you know, oil and gas engines and transitioning to alternative energy vehicles. In 10 years, the most ingrained, culturally inert industry in the country has completely transformed. That's a marketplace opportunity, not to mention he's the richest man in the world and all those other things. So I have a question. You're Australian, right? I am Australian, British, and oddly enough, yeah. I'm in Australia right now. I popped back to see my mum quickly, so I'm in Sydney, Australia. There you go. So that's a good the reason to culture. Mm. Being an Aussie like me, yeah. it's a completely different system to America with entrepreneurship. Yeah. Have yeah. you found a lot of challenges with what you're doing? Because it's a little different in Australia to in America when you, when you want to create an idea and you want to get support and you want to branch out. And obviously you're very mm. successful. But what, what things have you come up against culturally? Because it's a lot different to navigate Australia than America. I'm, I'm gonna, I really appreciate the question, Mike, because I'm going to speak candidly in the spirit of a true diehard Aussie. I, my experience, this is just mine, we are behind the eight ball here. We are not moving far enough, fast enough. We grew up in a country where it is impossible to avoid your deep connection to the natural world. And we should be the champions of climate solutions. We should be driving the innovation. Cities like Adelaide and others are really on the global map. But I feel like <clears throat> Sydney, Australia is behind. And I'm personally disappointed by that. And, and I've worked and done some speeches out here and worked with some groups and um, you know, some of the questions they're asking are quite early on in the journey that business has undergone. And I think, you know, sometimes that's due to proximity, like you're further away in Australia. Sometimes certain industries move faster than others. Sometimes consumer expectations are more demanding in certain markets than in others. That's not an excuse, and nor am I pointing fingers at Australia. But to your question, I found that they are a little bit behind, but they could move fast very quickly if they just realized that they're uniquely equipped with this innovation and entrepreneurial culture and their deep connection to the natural world and the kind of permission that the world for some reason gives Aussies to give it a go, I think they could do amazing things. Yeah. And you know, you're one of the top consultants in building strategic brands, their impact, the accelerated speed in which you can elevate that brand. And I always find it interesting as authors that, you know, as I come from a more traditional perspective of marketing and branding of athletes, celebrities, entertainers, billionaires, millionaires, and entrepreneurs, that it's still important to write these books. And regardless of being a New York Times bestseller, which you are and Australian's number one author in the business uh, realm, you know, you have now just launched another book in November. Mm -hmm. uh, and I would be um, amiss if I didn't ask you about your own strategic plan, as there's mm -hmm. so many more than ever aspiring authors of, you know, how do we market our own personal brands and yeah. why is writing a book so important in the impact and acceleration of your own personal brand? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, no one needs to write another book. It's about three or four years of no spare time, not losing quality time with family, justifiable kind of, you know, sideward glances from your wife sort of saying, hey, when is this going to be over? It's, it's, it's a big effort. <laughs> and, and all I would say is this. I write a book to actually learn what I want to share. I actually learn through the process of writing the book. Until you can put it down on paper, until you can codify it and distill it down in a way that's innately shareable, you don't really know what you're talking about. It's just ideas bouncing around in your head. And once you've done that, it becomes a springboard for all the other things you can do. So for my personal brand, you know, in terms of me being relevant, I wanted to write another book, but only when I had something that I felt was really worthwhile offering. I'm not in the business of just writing books to write a book. 
And that meant I, there was 10 years between the first book and the second book. But it, in anticipation of that, I launched a podcast, Lead With We. I've had a column in Forbes now for six or seven years. Now there's the book, there's the consulting firm, there's the speaking and so on. And in order of priority, I would say that there's three things. The number one thing I'm driving towards with the, the purpose of my professional, my personal brand is to take impact to scale. That's the number one reason. That's the filter I put in. Secondly, yes, it's consulting, you know, because you've got to pay the bills and do all these other things. And then thirdly, it's really about um, exposure in the sense that you get speaking and podcast opportunities like this and, and getting the word out there. So I think um, I've always, I've really always thought a lot about the term thought leader. If you want to be a thought leader, you have to lead. You have to get out front. You have to report back from the future. And you need to make these installments in the relevance of your personal brand. And so to your question, I think the key, the keystone of that is a book. And then you've got all the different dimensions that you do so well that can sort of support that. And when you do that, you create this sort of echo chamber, this compounding echo chamber through these different channels. And I think, David, you must know better than anyone. It's shocking. You run into somebody and they say they heard you speak or they saw something or they read something years ago and they went in a totally different direction because of that. And it is so humbling. It makes you so grateful and so mindful that it's a privilege to share your thinking with anyone. So get out there, build a personal brand very intentionally and take that responsibility, that privilege really seriously. And you do, and you do such a great job of uh, teaching lessons through stories. And I have and encourage everyone to have a repository of lessons and stories. And for me, the codification and organization of each of the books I write, and I know Mikey's been writing books ever since I've known him. We both use the same publishing consultant in order to facilitate the lessons and stories. It's so, so important. The last thing uh, before I let you go is that, you know, everything that you articulate is truly about planting seeds. And Dennis Waitley, one of my mentors, a thought leader from years past, always said, David, we're here to plant seeds, even plant seeds under trees that we may never sit under. And the legacy of a book and the sustainability and perpetuation of great content of lessons and stories is what Simon Mainwaring does. So read both of his books. Uh, and I know they're 10 years apart, but both still relevant today. Lead with we. Uh, yep. Please check it out. Where can people find you uh, for speaking, for coaching, for consulting, and to read the book? Where's the best place to reach out? Well, thanks to everyone for the interest. And about me, you go to simonmainwaring.com, simonmannering.com. And about the book, leadwithwe.com, leadwithwe.com. Grab a copy. And I'd, I'd ask something selfishly, which is get one for yourself, but just think of one person in your life, an entrepreneur or a corporate executive who might need this or is open or could benefit to this idea of how can we collaborate and work together in new ways to accelerate our growth and impact and give it to them because you'll be shocked. A year down the track, you'll be having a drink with them and they'll say, oh, yeah, you know what? We did something different because of that. And that will compound your impact. And you'll be like, damn, I made a real difference. So that's what I would ask. I love that. And Mikey, you know, I even got him to mispronounce his own last name. because All right. Thank you. Thank you. I've, I've, given up trying to, I've given up trying to pronounce it. I mean, it's a fact. You know, Mike, Mike would know. Mike would know. It's, you know yeah. In Australia, it's Mannering. Everywhere else, God knows. Who knows? Right. right? right. Exactly. Like a Mannering. He's Mannering. Yeah. Like a Mannering. Yeah. Thank yeah. you so much. I'll take Simon. it. We appreciate yeah. all the great work and the impact awesome. that you're having. Come back and visit me, okay? Will do. Will do. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Dave. Thanks. Bye, Happy buddy. New Year, everyone. Bye. Right you on. You know show's good when you got two Aussies on there. You cannot get better energy than that. All right. We'll bring on our next guest right on time, Stefano Lander, founder and CEO of Ormofo. Morpho. Sorry, Morpho. 
God, I'm, I'm my lips well, are all right. today. Uh, but anyway, right. you know, hey, Stefan, we, I hey. am so interested in what you do with your sportswear, uh, the gravity sportswear. I'm a guy who hangs every day. Uh, so <laughs> I uh, really am interested in, you know, number one, where you differentiate yourself in the market uh, with this new gravity sportswear, uh, because it is revolutionary in the land of uh, microfibering. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much. Uh, it's nice to be on. Uh, it uh, has been a long, fun journey. We've been working on this for three years and just launched a couple months ago here. So, uh, and and where it's different is, you know, we're always told that uh, sportswear should always be lightweight. And I worked many, many years, over twenty years at Nike, where you, there's an obsession with lightweight. And it comes from the the founding of the company was that every ounce that can be taken out of a shoe means not announced that you don't have to carry when you're running and that makes some sense same thing then transferred over to apparel and, and sportswear in general that this obsession with lightweight then and, and it struck me while i was still there one day working out that the first thing we do when we put on all this lightweight is add weight because the only way you're going to get stronger is if you add resistance um and the other insight then became well it may be that all this apparel that's being designed is designed for competition. But most people spend less than 1% of their time competing and 99% of their time you know, preparing to, to compete and train. So we've created a collection called Gravity Sportswear where we embed weights into the apparel that you wear. Uh, but we don't do it in a way it was traditionally done with weighted vests. You know, you throw on 10, 15, 20 pounds and you're walking around like a robot because it messes with your form. What we do is uh, use a science called microload. And with microloading, you distribute small amounts of weight, only 1 to 5% of your body mass. So, for instance, our long sleeve shirt is only 2.5 pounds. We hold it, you feel the weight, but when you put it on, you kind of forget that it's there. And then you go do your workout exactly the way you were intended to do it, whether you're running, whether you're you know, doing a high intensity workout, whether you're doing team sports, and you realize some pretty amazing gains. Um, you can burn up to 8% more calories. You can get to 3 to 5% more faster without changing anything but what you wear. I have a question. So you said a great thing about uh, resistance, especially coming from Nike. Have you come up against some resistance when you're doing something like this to open people's minds? So like you said, like the heavy weight vest can injure you, but distributing the weight correctly, like you said, you can burn more calories and build up, you know, your strength in that. So have you come up against any resistance when you started to put this stuff together? Well, you know how it is when you're, when you're innovating and creating new stuff, there, there is always resistance, right? It's kind of inherent, I don't know, maybe in mankind. But, but I think uh, there is always questions. There, there are always people that go, well, I don't know, and how would that work, and why would you do that, et cetera. But I think that's part of the joy of, of being a startup is to prove people wrong. And there is nothing better than the look on an athlete's face and by athlete, you know, I mean, every athlete as well as professional athletes, when they go, they look and they go, how on earth has no one done this before? You know, why has no one thought of something so deeply intuitive as add a little bit of load to get more from your training 
and then you can get be better off when you're when you're competing or if you even if you're not competing but yeah so to answer your question absolutely that always happens doesn't it there's always um there's always skepticism <laughs> to new ideas oh yeah they always laugh at you scoff at you make fun of you then they applaud you one of the other interesting things is you know i study right now i'm writing a book about reconciliation of the speed of thought and the speed of light uh, the practical world and studying neville goddard and the importance of creativity and imagination in the manifestation process and i've been blessed while you were at nike to, to work there with craig and bill keller and jeff green and just a variety of people throughout the years um which is a very uh creative culture and yeah. you know when i first started over at the campus over 20 years ago myself it was almost like a cult because everybody had this kind of goddard imaginative encouragement um, and you were the vice president in, in digital sport, which at the time was very new. Um, it seems to me that you've crossed over the mindset that you had to have in the digital world of sport into a completely, instead of the realm of the speed of thought, which the digital world works in most applicably, you switched it over back into a very pragmatic solution saying, hey, you know, why are people wearing vests with 20 pounds on them? You know, when we can take a consistent, persistent load with micro loading and create, you know, a hyper percentage result, how much of the mindset from the culture that you were bred into uh, with that Nike family, that Nike campus and in the digital realm of sports, how important is that mindset as you applied it to this very pragmatic utilization of microfiber and, and micro loading? Well, I mean, you know, as, as you well know, Nike isn't unbelievable um fertile ground for ideas and creativity and some of the brightest people work there you're surrounded by this deep deep desire to innovate right and create things that are better for athletes and 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 i think that's if, if you spend 20 years there it's inevitable that you're going to be learning a ton of great things and and a lot of it has to do with attitude and approach and how you think about serving people and 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 why why the company exists something that i love for me what was interesting when i ran digital sport was we obviously came at it through the lens of how do we leverage technology in a way that we can help athletes get better and and you can get pretty quickly you can get uh, enamored by technology right and you, and you start especially as it relates to athletes you start adding things and there was this super interesting momentum shift when the quantified self exploded right and there should be sensors everywhere and and, and a lot of people went down that path and you pretty quickly realize that what people need more than anything is motivation and simple solutions with as little friction as possible and some of these technological solutions required charging and pairing and you couldn't wash them and so you so so what i learned there was for for as powerful as technology is it's only as good as the application of it and how you do it in a way that's simple and useful to the user so so for us although this is at least now i'm gonna I'm not going to divulge anything. At least now it's an analog solution uh, because we believe that the the greatest opportunity is to serve as many people as possible with, with something that holds no friction. We do use technology because that's how we reach our consumers, right? You, you know, as you know, you, you, you we're direct to consumer. We love the digital realm, both in terms of storytelling and how we allow people to shop on a Morpho.fit, but also how we connect. 
because I think it's important that people that get into this idea of, of amorphogravity sportswear and microload want to connect with each other. So it's not like the technological angle is gone. It's just applied in a different way, maybe more so than deeply you know, in, um, uh, into the garment itself. How many, oh, sorry, Dave, you want to say something? Or no, go ahead. No, no, go. How many uh, pieces of apparel do you have at the weighted and how, what's the difference of the weights? In the yeah, so the, yeah, we have um, seven skews for men and six skews for women in different colors and sizes. But the beauty of it is it basically starts with, if you look at from the, from the heaviest one, we still do, we, we do make a weighted vest, but unlike most of the weighted vests that are out there, we are not you know, making it a badge of honor to make it as heavy as possible. We want to make it as comfortable as possible. So our the men's vest is around 10 pounds and the women's vest is around six pounds. And then that's you go weight, from there to 10 our, pounds is still some weight. Yeah, yeah, that's still weight. And that's the heaviest. Then you go to our long sleeve shirt, which is about two and a half pounds. You go to short sleeve for guys to sleeveless. For, for women, it's tank tops, crop tops. We do leggings or tights that we are super proud of because they put the load in the right place. We have a men's, we call it the G short, which is a two-in-one short that has a, a weighted base layer and then the short on top of it. For her, we have a, a biker short, which is really, really popular. So, so when you look at the collection, you can go all the way from less like a half a pound up to 10 pounds depending on what how intense your activity is so if you're you know if you're going for you know if you're a sprinter you don't want to be putting on any 10 pounds because it's going to mess with your joints and tendons and stuff so but um that's the collection that's great and i assume when you say the load in the uh pants are in the right place it's in the butt right <laughs> <laughs> it's evenly and anatomically distributed uh so yeah no you want to be you know you want to be able to comfortably sit so you don't want to put it there <laughs> okay sorry i got too many kids uh anyway last question though you know it's interesting because there's so many directions in branding that you could go although you chose the name o omorpho which means beauty, if I'm not mistaken, uh, in Greek. That's Greek, yeah. And uh, yet it's so functional, practical in its matter. Why, why did you choose to relate it back to the style uh, instead of the practicality? Was there a purposeful reason behind the name? Well, a number of them. I'm half Greek and I grew up speaking Greek, so I, I, I really like that. And, it, and it's all and, Greek and to it's, me. It's, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So for me, it was very, very natural. And, and, uh, and I also wanted something that we could trademark and protect, you know, it's, which is these days not the easiest thing to do. You know, you start adding a bunch of funky letters and removing vowels to, you know, to even have a chance to get it. Omorpho for us is, you know, and you're sort of, sort of the, the, there's this notion that you morph into something else, which is kind of cool. So we, we, we love it. We think, you know, it doesn't roll off the tongue always, but once you, once you get it, it sticks. So we love it. Yeah, I know it's a very, a very strong brand and a very strong name. Um, you know, just last question, Mike, you got something real quick? Cause I got one more question. No, you got it. So I, I know this to be true in the incestuous space of sportswear and sports, especially shoes, uh, you know, as everybody kind of, uh, how many people on your team are from Nike and how many from the shoe or, or apparel industry? Are there any people that you've hired outside of that? Uh, two. 
right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like the hair. You know, I mean, no, but people, I mean, it's, it's kind of fun, right? Cause it's, it's, it's an amazing, we're, we're, we're distributed all over the, the world, but Portland is the base obviously. And, and there are a lot of people here that are really, really uh, loving the opportunity to work in a small place. It's just, it's, it's a little different. Right. And, and, and it's, uh, and yeah, it's a fun industry to be in. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, you're doing such an exceptional job. Uh, you can just go to amorpho.fit, get the incredible gear, long sleeve, short sleeve, no sleeve, and especially the pants. It's loaded, <laughs> distributed equally for right everyone. Uh, but I love the concept because it fits into my concept in life, right? I believe in the aggregate effect, that it takes 90% of the effort to see any result. And, you know, it's amazing what two pounds or a pound will do in every yeah. workout uh, to get a better result for the same activity. So I, I think it's genius. I love the way that you think. I love the mindset and I love the beauty of the product. I have seen the styles. And so not only are they very functional, but they're extremely comfortable and extremely good looking. So uh, just keep up the great work. Don't forget Mike and I during Christmas. Uh, we appreciate you. <laughs> thank you so much. Bye, buddy. Take Bye. care. Have a good Thanks, time. Stefan. Bye, Congrats. Bye. Thank you. Genius. I love Dude, the, in the right places. I love yeah. how you said that in the right places. I love genius, right? The expression of God. You take a guy like that that knows his business so well, and yet there he is uh, creating something that's obvious, you know, that nobody else has thought of. And think about yeah. how many people work with Nike for Nike in the shoes and the apparel side that have seen all that and never said, hey, why don't we do this? <laughs> you yeah. know, I, I will yeah. tell you a funny story. Um, it, before we get to the takeaway of the day or, or see what's going on, they, um, Kevin Plank, the uh, CEO, founder of Under Armour, came to Lee early on, okay. asked for 10 grand. And Lee was like, not a chance. Like, who would ever think they could compete with Nike? He laughed him when he talked about laughing, scoffing, and make fun of him, right? Because he had like a new fit, uh, a new idea for, yeah, yeah, yeah. for Under Armour. And uh, I always laugh because, you know, Lee was at the top of his game and everybody approached Lee, you know, whether it was Metrex or Under Armour or Cool Packs or it was amazing how much deal flow that guy would see. And, you know, half the time he'd look at it and go like, why would they, you know, why would anyone? And I'm laughing because if, uh, forget sports agency, if he would have just thrown 10 grand into half the deals and been wrong on half uh it, it would have been amazing anyway our, our friend is here jarnell stokes co-founder and partner stoked film group <laughs> and uh you got the unbelievable new news here coming out in his production so first of all welcome to uh office hours would love to talk about uh your films slayers and dig to start with and many others so uh, give me an idea, a little bit of background, how you got into the business and having Stoke Films Group. Yeah, well, it's a pleasure being here. I appreciate it, David and Mike. You guys rock. Hey. You know, I've heard a ton of great things, and uh, I, I appreciate the invite for sure. Well, uh, I well, long story short, uh, I've been able to uh, you know come a long way from four years in the NBA. You know, two years in China, I've won chess championships, uh, gold medals, and um, you know, I had a very successful basketball career that's still in effect. 
And, um, you know, I've run into people like Baron Davis. I have projects with uh, the Dean Devlins and uh, Taylor Materni. Uh, you know, nobody does, nobody does more deals. Nobody does more deals, uh, Jarnell, than Baron Davis. You want to do a Hang out with BD. He's my boy. He's gonna be on next season. Okay. Uh, office hours too, uh, Mike, nice. on the TV show. But yeah, man, that guy's the king of deal flow. He's a good guy to hang out with. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I've hung out with him a few times in LA. He's brilliant. Very yeah. smart. Very smart. And uh, it, yeah, I, I want to provide a, an opportunity, not only. Uh, a, a way for myself to improve as a filmmaker, but an opportunity and a resource for other creatives. So, um, you know, the reason the creation behind the Stoke Film Group was nonetheless an opportunity for other creatives to um, make a path. And, and we're also, you know, very excited about uh, the opportunity to provide male-driven content. You know, I, in a society it's crazy i was growing up it was always um you know let's we need more strong women leads you know we need uh it was all these female this and female that and it's kind of counterintuitive to start a business looking to uh satisfy men now but uh that's become a need i don't know if you guys have realized that and if, if you watch tv but that's something that's that's kind of happening in the industry so that's our uh, pain point and uh have have you guys uh, been in, in hollywood any lately or, oh, yeah. or uh, tell, tell me about your experience because you know, yeah so i, I things i want to share but oh, yeah well, no i've uh, been executive producer you know of entrepreneurs elevator pitch uh, i have two shows on bloomberg and amazon and i have a new streaming deal announced in january so i have office hours this digital show became a tv show it's the first late night entrepreneur show which will have to have you on uh, on bloomberg and, and amazon prime and then uh, two-minute drill I, I have as well but i've done movies uh with angelo pizzo and david anspa the 500 uh which is you know rudy hoosiers the 500 we're doing the a first responders movie but i was blessed when i ran lee steinberg the sports agency uh that you may be familiar with you know everything from jerry Maguire, any given sunday the love of the game our list united states of football some 30 for 30s like run ricky run uh, so i've been around but i will tell you when i saw your background I, I can imagine when you first got involved in film, the two things mm -hmm. that I learned, this may resonate with you. First two things I learned. One, that I thought there'd be no more competitive, scarce business in the world than sports or sports agency, but entertainment by far outweighs the scarcity in sports in ma sports management and, and, and agentry. Just get into the TV world, oh my God. And then the second one that's really funny is my first movie, which was The 500 with... Angelo Pizzo and David Anspa that did Rudy and Hoosiers. Uh, it's about the Carl Fisher, Carl, Carl Fisher, the 100th anniversary of the Indy 500. Anyway, they asked me to be an executive producer. And I was more where you were at when you were playing. I, I really didn't even know movies or TV. And so I you know, pulled Lee aside. I said, hey, bro, I go, you, you know, I didn't go to film school. I, I, I don't know anything, <laughs> anything about, you know, movies or TV. How are, how are you making me an executive producer? I'm not going to know what to tell the cameraman. He goes, no, you idiot. Executive producer raises the money. I go, oh, I, I can do that. <laughs> nice. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, yeah. And and on top of that, you know, finding other producers, uh, just having that business mindset, you know, it's it's uh, important to, you know, have the distribution on on uh on at least the forefront of your mind before making the film sometimes you can get financing if 
you uh, you know find the right actor. So uh, there there are a few business uh, necessities that come with being an entrepreneur uh, out that I've personally experienced outside of just uh, the the money side. But uh, that that's very interesting that you mentioned that uh, that that you know I, I would leave the hardest form of Hollywood, which is the NBA, to come over and into the Hollywood, which is, you know, I've experienced what I know exactly, you know, what you're talking about as far as, uh, you know, people don't exactly take the rookie uh, mentality. Well, like I, I thought that I was going to be able to uh, leave the NBA and, and just come and find quick success. You know, I reach out to, because, you know, my gift to this industry, I feel, is writing. You know, let me say that before in, in business. So I, I've created TV shows uh, that, you know, one got picked up by, uh, like I said, Dean Dean Devlin, uh, Jake Focato, who was on um, King of the Hill. He was a producer on, on uh, Simpsons and, you know, all, all types of uh, uh, what you call it. I, I ran into uh, the, the guy. I don't know if you know the Hustle movie that's coming out, uh, Taylor yeah. Maturney. Yeah. yeah. So you know, LeBron's company, uh, that's. It's it's been a, a very wild ride for my writing career, and um, I guess that that's what I'm trying to say is my gift to the industry would be to write. But you need a team in order to get projects on TV, and I've reached out to like the Shonda Rhimes, the the Morgan uh, Freeman's company, Revelations, the Ice Cube. You know, I I literally uh, thought that uh, I would you know do projects with my favorite creators coming into the industry like how ignorant are we to uh you know think it'll be that way i don't know if it's like my my mba mentality but uh you know it was a lot of no's and i had to <laughs> uh, get prepared for that you know, i guess maybe the nba hearing it from pat riley and the freaking um uh, dave yeagers the the denver nuggets owners hearing them say uh, no, every now and then has uh, prepared me and, and given me just a harder still. So uh, I, I guess if I had to give some advice here, I, I would just say uh, it, it's a spiritual thing that's carrying me past uh, hearing a no. Uh, I've had to really uh, think outside the box as far as accumulating resources, which is somewhat how the Stoke Film Group came into about, you know, this is my first year in the industry and um I, I keep hearing no from a lot of producers so i have you know found some uh, success and and on, on top of that i'm i'm a um social activist and environmental activist with the hip hop caucus uh I, i'm you know grassroots manager there uh board member of the environmental media association and um you know i i was protesting a lot in in 2020 and you know i wanted to make content for uh you know, people that prefer to watch socially active, um, socially engaging, uh, something where you can get um, spiritual enrichment and entertainment. And um, it, it just felt like, uh, I don't know if, if you guys had some type of uh, energy, but I felt like something else was taking over me uh, in 2020 to write all these scripts. I honestly don't know if I can do it again. <laughs> yeah, man, just keep channeling. Just keep channeling. It's coming through you. You know you can do it again. It's already there. There you go. Love it. Love I, it, man. Yeah. So, so, so did, 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 mm -hmm. I was going to say, did your MBA, MBA career 
was it quick? Like, did you get drafted and did it happen quick? And then it did happen quick, right? Or was was it an easier flow for you? And that's why when you came, I I, I was involved in the Inc. franchise, Miami Inc., mm-hmm. New York Inc. Then I took it to nice. Australia, Bondi Inc. But when I first came to this country, being an actor, it was it was no's all the time. It was just like no, 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 mm-hmm. no, no, and just but you build that resistance up. But right. do you think because the NBA stuff happened really quick, and then you have to start from ground zero in a completely different industry, even though you're really successful, you know, people looking at you like, well, so what? Go make a film or go produce your own stuff or go raise your own money. Was it because the other stuff came quicker to you? Uh, actually, the, the NBA journey did not come quick, to be no. honest. Yeah, okay. yeah. when I got tough. to the NBA, you know, I got drafted to my favorite team which was the uh, Grizzlies. They were a playoff team. They were ready to uh, kick butt uh, in, in their respective time frame. Uh, as a rookie, uh, I was not as um, – I, I would say I was not a, a necessity that they need. I don't know if you heard of the grid and grind uh, versus, you know, today's age where everyone's shooting up threes and, and you know, <laughs> it's just wild basketball from, from my perspective, what I grew up in. And – and that's that's kind of what I faced in the league for three years. Just so you know, it's kind of like that uh, that that tall actor that is just too tall for every role. <laughs> you know, it just <laughs> happens that way. And um, it prepared me to uh, definitely you know deal with the experience. But uh, I also uh, you know also was preparing me to deal with no was the fact that um, you know there's something spiritual that's you know happening. And I would, on a macro level around the world, not only, you know, people, but, um, you know, people in the industry where normally a guy that's conscious like me and and want to do good for the world would not, uh, you know, bother, you know, trying to get into uh, this industry because it may, you know, compromise certain values Um, I'm learning. And, And that just goes back to my point where I would reach out to certain, you know, TV heads and, and, you know, just hearing no from some of the best of the best people, people that you had in mind writing the project for, um, it, it just, it, it does something to you. You have a, a choice, you know, whether you're going to get better or, um, you know, you just, you, you may just cave in and realize that you know, maybe I'm, I'm not a writer or something, you know, it's the writing <laughs> journey. But, um, you know, it's just with, with all the, stuff that happened on on black lives matter you know that that fueled me a lot to want to see um good intentions on the screens for um all types of people i'm I'm not a i'm I'm more into like black i mean i'm more into good versus evil over black versus white and um you know just hearing no from a lot of executives you know taught me that uh, I, I, I better uh, get better. I better continue improving. So, no, I, I, I don't, you know, have any uh, type of, you know, guilt or, or do I, you know, hold them, you know, accountable or nothing like that. But yeah, great question, Mike. Yeah, I mean, coming from someone, you know, in my career, on the other side, uh, as you talk about black versus white, working on Jackie Robinson's project, representing the Clemente family, Warren Moon, who I not only represented but was my best friend and business partner with sports one marketing, you know, seeing the other side of it, of trying to figure out how can this be about good versus evil and how can we prioritize 
black lives uh, because it needs to be prioritized to stop the systematic changes that uh, are counterintuitive and also counterproductive. Um, just real quickly, you know, I'm looking through, there's very few human beings on earth that are like you. I mean, I'm thinking, you know, you're still playing in China, you played in the NBA, you have two gold medals, which is no joke. Uh, you know, I sit on the Olympic committee, so, you know, gold medals mean something to me, especially. Uh, but you also deal in sports brand management, food and wellness, crypto, philanthropy, and the list goes on and on. You know, obviously you have an open mind, an open heart, <laughs> open hands. How, how did that come about to have the courage to have this open mind and take on so many different challenges and exceed at such a high level? Yeah, well, I, I was that kid that grew up in, in a terrible environment in the hood, for sure. I got um, and, and I won chess champions. You know, I would join the gang at age like freaking 10 years old, throwing up gang signs and leave them. And 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 then I actually won two, three state championships, you know, as a kid. I have a huge <laughs> amount of trophies. So like, was, Mar Marcellus Wiley was the eighth grade typing champ in California. Do you know that? <laughs> Out of Compton. I would have never thought eighth that. Eighth grade typing champ. Yeah, my man. Wow. So oh, my now man. you're you're the chess champ. I love it. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But you know, back then where I'm from, uh, I don't know if you know about young Dolph's killing, but there was a huge retaliation after. I just found out the street that I was raised on is where they found a lot of the, the getaway artillery, like a chop shop. And, um, you know, there was over 10 people dead on that street just two weeks ago. Uh, it's very, very uh, misfortunate industry. I like what Issa Rae said about, you know, the music industry versus Hollywood and how it's a lot of um, just evil and tendencies going on there. So uh, with that being said, man, um, you know, growing up from that type of environment, is just going to teach you a lot. You know, you, you either, you're either going to cave or, um, you know, you're going to realize that I can be anything. And um, that's something that I, I really registered with me once I, um, you know, I got hurt with the Nuggets. I was not living. I was not the guy. I was always. I mean, I was not the guy I am today at all yeah. times. Like seriously, uh, I went from, um, you know, I was a strip club guy, just like you know, some of my retired former teammates. <laughs> I see you raising your hand, David. Yeah, yeah, I man. It, it's, man. it's nothing to be proud of, but I make sure I, I, I let the kids and any entrepreneur know that you can overcome anything. And uh, a lot of what I was doing was for peer pressure. And I, I got to the realism of my actions uh, after I got hurt with the Nuggets. So, um, you know, once I played with the Nuggets, I, you know, I was having the beast, beastly uh, preseason. And, and I was doing everything that I was supposed to do uh, to, you know, make, make it. I don't know if you know, a lot of Kenneth Reed yep. uh, trade rumors were happening. I was behind that. Um, and... It just for some reason I got hurt, uh, and and that turned me into a, a freaking beast off the court. I would say so. I I started a uh, a sports uh, management auxiliary management company, uh, a sports entertainment uh, division at the Benford Company, where you know we we providing resources because I don't like people like like uh, we we want to provide resources for uh, athletes in the entertainment industry. It's so hard for uh, people that 
want to do good into the world, want to bring uh, positive intentions to a, a world that just doesn't exactly uh, align. And, and I look at people like Kevin Durant and uh, LeBron James, you know, respectively, they have built freaking empires off the court. But um, for guys who were on the bench, you know, I average three minutes per game. I did, you know, get when I got in the game, I, I got my shots up. Trust me. Like, <laughs> you, you can't say I deserve to be on the bench after watching me play. But uh, the, the reality of the matter is uh, a lot of people did not know who I was off the court. Like, I just, just I was completely shocked to walk around and just be a regular guy. <laughs> when you were in that environment where, you know, everyone knows your name and then you realize, wait, only 5% of the people watch basketball or, you know, whatever. Yeah, it's it's a huge wake-up call. And I had to do that at age, like, 24. I'm like, yeah. I grew up the top, you know, the best player. So to, ma to make a long story short, um, I got scammed a few times. You know, I, I'm not ashamed to say that, I dealt with some wolves. I've, you know, failed a few times getting into this. It wasn't, you know, clear and dry. Like I know LeBron James company, uh, he has Maverick Carter. Uh, Maverick Carter is a freaking beast. Like, you know, uh, Kevin Durant has a uh, climbing who's, yeah. you know, he's building 35 ventures to, to what is it? And, you know, partly Kevin Durant and Brian, they're, they're doing their parts. Don't get me wrong. But what I'm saying for guys who are, um, you know, on the bench or mid-level or even playing and, you know, don't have a huge brand, we're being taught not to brand ourselves. We're being taught not to be entrepreneurs and that we should, you know, give all this real estate to, I like using the term real estate in business, give all the real estate to the stars. And I think that every day Joe should run a business. Seriously, I think that should be the mentality because as a people, not just black people, we need more thinkers. <laughs> we need more writers. We need more influencers like you guys. And uh, not not just, you know, everyone who's, you know, in this to, to win and, and, you know, be a star. So well, that, you, are, you are a star. You are a star and you're creating stars, which makes it Thank even you. better. I would say empowering others to empower others, elevating others to elevate yourself. And anything Mike and I can do, uh, Jarnell, please let us know. We got a new studio down in Orange County. So if you ever need a space as well, right right above South Coast Plaza, it opens January 3rd. It'll Dave Melcher Studio action for you. But we'd love to do more projects. Please come back and visit us, man. I'm so proud of you. This is a true entrepreneur. Just an incredible, incredible balanced young man. And uh, appreciate the advancement and growth that you've had and the ones that you're inspiring others to have as well. So thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, David. Uh, thank you, Happy holidays. Thank you. Darnell Stokes, stokesbrothers.com, stokesbros.com, stokesbrothers. <laughs> what an extraordinary entrepreneur. All right, last but not least, patiently waiting in the green room. I can see him there. Glenn is here. Hey, Glenn. Gunsweiler. He He's is here. Me. Also a filmmaker, producer uh, of his own production company, and uh, you know, also a video coach, which is definitely needed, a teacher, and has a a great uh, new book and on Amazon Prime, uh, Why Homeless, A Degree in Homelessness uh, and Entrepreneurial Skills for Students, which can be found on Amazon as well. Welcome to Office Hours, Glenn. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. 
Well, give us a little bit of background uh, on how you found distribution for Why Homeless. And I know you may have a question for Mr. D and me. Sure, sure. So, yeah, my documentary, Why Homeless, was on the back of the housing crisis. I was teaching at universities and I bought a house in 2006. Turned out that was a really bad year to buy a house. And so I got cut back at work and uh, I wasn't going to be able to make my payments. And my bank said, we won't even talk to you until you stop paying us. And I said, what, pardon? <laughs> and so that realized, that made me realize I was in jeopardy of becoming homeless because if they decided to foreclose on me, I'd already ruined my credit. I couldn't get into an apartment and I was a university professor and I was homeless. That didn't make sense. So I made a documentary really trying to figure out how people become homeless in this country, what they do to get out, what it's like being homeless. And then for the past 11 years, I've just been trying to, to figure out this homelessness conundrum that we have in the United States and hidden it from all angles. And since I taught at universities in 2015, I left teaching to focus on the business side of entertainment and started learning all these entrepreneurial skills. And, you know, I had students say, Glenn, I don't know what I'm going to do when I graduate. I think I'm going to have to work at my work at Starbucks and sleep in my car because they don't know how to make money. And so that's my latest book, A Degree in Homelessness, Entrepreneurial Skills for Students. And my question for you is, if what are some words of wisdom you may have for people that only know the way to success is taking and passing tests, which is not, <laughs> is not a success outside of academia? Great question. Mike, you want to go first? You want me yeah, to... I'm, all right. It, 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 thanks, Dave. Well, first of all, I'm all about what you're doing with homelessness because I'm in uh, the addiction world and I didn't realize how many people, I thought it was mainly mental health. And when I looked at the statistics and realized it's like people losing jobs, I'm like, what? Or battered women or people being abused. I just thought it was drug addiction and mental health. I had no clue. Um, so for me, oh, it's a lot easier because I come from dyslexia, ADHD, and got thrown out of school and survived without a degree. So the most important thing to me when I came to this country with nothing from Australia, an isolated capital city, is the ability to sell yourself. And what people don't understand is that it doesn't matter if Dave has a law degree and I have a law degree. When we go in for the job, guess what they're hiring? Me, not the piece of paper. And people forget that. People think I get the PhD, I get the degree. That has nothing to do with you as a person. And as a person, you have to have the right attitude. It's all about attitude and doing the work no matter how you feel. Do you know what I mean? It's about showing up early and leaving late and being the person that's willing to do the work no matter. It's just doing the work. And that's where people cannot separate that. And, and at the end of the day, you're working with people even if you're working online. So my thing is learn to bring value to other people. Forget about yourself, work hard and say, what value can I bring other people daily? And then you're recession proof. Because if I can bring you value, you'll always pay for my service. Yeah, and Glenn, I, I think you bring up a good point because a lot of leading entrepreneurs uh, that I deal with, you know, Gary and Tom and Ed and all, all my friends, Edwin, you know, a lot have dropped out of high school and, you know, I'm one of the rarities in the entrepreneurial space where I'm overeducated. You know, I came from a, a parent, the, the, her, her philosophy, my mom truly didn't think the fetus was fully developed till after graduate school. It was doctor, lawyer, or failure. And, and where I think we have to realize is something that I learned from being a sports agent about quarterbacks. 
See, they, they always would say, because I had some great quarterbacks we represented that didn't really do very well, like Ryan Leaf and Jeff George. Um, incredible skills, incredible knowledge of the game, but skills and knowledge only determine your basement. So by becoming educated, you, you're elevating the basement that you have compared to others that may not graduate to high school. But what determines your ceiling is your desire. And what I want to tell people is, my mom was right. She just didn't articulate it correctly. The best investment you can make is in yourself. We're just blessed today to have free resources to educate ourselves on as narrow, specific that you, if you want to be a, you know, a hanger of nails three inches wide, you can learn about it for free uh, from the experts of hanging nails that are three, you know, three inches wide. And I, I just want to encourage entrepreneurs out there, elevate your basement, learn. I study every day. I study what I want to learn. I study Goddard and Dyer and Course in Miracles. I study Napoleon Hill, not things they taught me in college, but they changed my life. I study history for human nature. I want to learn about human nature so I can apply what I'm learning. I want everyone out there to know your skills and knowledge. You got to keep on increase. So your basement rises, but like Mike says, when it comes down to it, your ceiling, your potential is only determined by your desire. You have to have the desire that you must be what you can be. You have to be able to make mistakes, failures, setbacks, and learn from them. The fast learners, they're going to do well because they're not afraid of making mistakes because they know they can learn fast and they'll end up in a better place from the mistakes. You're looking at someone that you know, was financially illiterate with a law degree, business degree from some of the top institutions running the most notable sports agency in the world. And I lose over a hundred million dollars because I didn't have the skills and knowledge. All I had was desire. So I want to make sure everybody knows, go out there, get educated. You don't got to go to the UC system. You don't got to go to Stanford. You don't have to go to Harvard, but if you're interested, then be more interested than interesting. Raise the skills and the knowledge, apply your desire and you will succeed as an entrepreneur. Great. That's great stuff. Yeah. Thank, thank you, Glenn, so much for everything that you're doing for the homeless, everything you're doing for our kids. Please reach out to us. We are absolutely on board in helping you as well to raise the awareness and the education so that more people can live fruitful, passionate, purposeful, and profitable lives. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Take, Take care. Happy holidays. Thank you. Bye. We appreciate you. All right, my man. Takeaway for the day. Mine's going to be resilience. Hmm. Resilience kept coming up today. You know, it's like you're going to face that adversity and you've got to be resilient and you've got to keep, enjoy the no's. No one should, everyone should say no to you. And I'll tell you why. Your calling wasn't a conference call. It's your vision, your calling. No one's going to be able to see what you can see. So enjoy the no's, be resilient. And just keep pushing forward. You know, and, and for me, it's have the courage to uh, pursue what you want. So whether it was Simon leaving, uh, you know, lead, lead with me and, and what he does in the business revolution, or of course, Stefan leaving Nike uh, to create yep. this common sense thing. Jarnell, obviously, you know, could do whatever he wants. Uh, and then Glenn, a professor, you know, becoming a filmmaker and producer, you know, follow you. 
It's okay. You can have people hate you for who you are as long as they love you for who you're not. <laughs> Hi. Good to see you. Oh, I love that. Anyway, that's Sorry. what makes you feel the best. Don't ever apologize. That's, that's what we love on this show. Remember when I had Coco on here the other night? I, I just wish we could see Matt in his dumb cowboy hat. He, he came in and said hi to you. He's like, he never says hi to anyone. He's like, hi. He likes me. He likes me. He loves you. <laughs> Dude, this is, the last, this is the last episode of the year for us. And uh, we got big things planned for next year. You are a dear friend. Have your new day resolutions. Make yourself better every day. I'm blessed to have you in my life. That's for sure. And please send my love you. to your entire family and our new stars. So Mike Diamond, everyone. <laughs> Wish him off. Love Have you, a great mate. new year. Love you. Take care. Bye, buddy. Bye. Bye, -bye. <laughs> All right, everyone. Like Mikey said, this was the last uh, Wednesday episode of Office Hours. We'll be back next year. A little dose of diamond with David. A lot of de-alliteration like the Dallas Cowboys and Matthew Mendoza. I want to thank him as well, executive producing this show in a manner. And he makes his bed every single week. It's wonderful. All right, everyone. Just so you know, I still end the show the same way. Be kind to your future self and do good deeds. See you tomorrow. Thanks.